Turn with me now to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking this morning at a text that's oftentimes referred to as the Magnificat. Uh, Mary saying, I glorify, I magnify uh, the Lord. That's coming from the Latin, the Magnificat. Uh, there, It's a prayer, it's a psalm, it's a song uh, that uh, Mary speaks, that she prays uh, there. Uh, Luke is the third of the four Gospels we have. Matthew, then Mark, Luke, goes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, again, the idea being here, approaching this text this morning with a question before us, and that is, if in fact we're feeling that distance between us and the Lord this morning, and if prayer and a struggle to pray is a part of that, then what does this passage have to say? What does this passage have to say to us this morning? Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Hear now the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Well, let's pray together for just a moment. Lord, if we're not feeling distance uh, in our relationship with you here this morning, for whatever reason, um, we pray that you would prepare us for those times in which we will. And those of us here this morning that are struggling with that, we pray that you would speak, speak closely, speak uh, quietly, clearly, to our hearts, help us to, to see, oh, help us to see, indeed you are near, nearer than we know, despite what we feel, and oh, would you help us to see in this passage that there's so much here, so much reality here that should ignite a desire to pray, to commune with you in prayer, and there's so much here, and not just ignites that, but, but fuels it and shapes it. Oh, we pray that we ask here at the outset that you would do that. Speak to our hearts here, all of us here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. The context of this text is important, and it's, it's worth thinking about here just for, for a moment before we get to go any further. And that, so the first thing it's worth noting is earlier in, in Luke 1, you have what's oftentimes referred to as the Annunciation, meaning that the angel Gabriel has come to Mary there in this little backwater town of Nazareth, and, and announced to her what it is that is about to come and who it is that is about to come in and through her, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. That's the Annunciation. That then leads to what's oftentimes referred to formally as the Visitation, where Mary travels some miles south to the Judean hills and sits down for some period of time with her older relative Elizabeth, who is already by this point six months pregnant, carrying the man, well, the child who will become the man, John the Baptist. This is a dramatic meeting. 
This is a dramatic meeting. Uh, not just these two women, but these two children. These two children. One commentator I was reading this past week said that this meeting is electric. It, it, it's the, the, the two covenants kissing, the old and the new, John and Jesus. It is so dramatic, it is so electric that John in utero jumps for joy. He's expressing it to the degree he possibly can, the fullest degree that he possibly can, who this is, and he's jumping within his mother's womb. And, and Elizabeth is, 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 is um, capturing for us just what happens to every human soul when they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah because she's overflowing with joy. She pronounces, she announces to Mary, you are the mother of my Lord. And Mary, Mary, we can't even hardly begin to understand what emotions must be, this complex mix of emotions she must be feeling at this moment. Anxiety? Fear as to what this all is going to mean? Wonder and awe? All of that. All of that. We also know that Mary, sadly, over the centuries, has accumulated a bit of baggage. And this is what I mean by that. A lot of um, unfortunate and mistaken titles and myths that have been told about her by the Catholic Church. Now over here, that's one side. Now over this side. A lot of mistaken and unfortunate reactions by Protestants to that where we now recognize that, no, certainly Mary is not the source of our salvation. But we still have much to learn from her. She is a model, an example of godliness that we would be fools to just ignore because of abuses in the past and our understanding of who she is and her role in salvation history. Let's put it this way. The virgin birth, obviously, is a unique event but not absolutely unique. The virgin birth is a unique event, but it is not absolutely unique. Look back with the text with me, uh, verses 46 to 49, as Mary is just speaking of her own experience, her own personal experience here. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done Great things for me, and holy is his name. Let me ask you a question. Is Mary the only one? Is she the only one who could ever speak in any way like this? Is there nothing here that any other follower of God, any other disciple of Jesus could not say? Her experience, yes, is unique, but not absolutely unique. There's so much here that parallels, that we can learn from and, 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 and um, move from. Mary's experience, let me put it this way, Mary's experience and prayer was unique, but we must consider and apply it to ourselves. Her experience and prayer was unique, but we must learn, consider how to apply it to ourselves. 
in particular, our prayer lives and, and how to pray and why to pray and what we learn from all of this. Three things, they're in your outline, just these simple three points. Just move through them fairly quickly. The first, as we look to his mercy, as we, secondly, then we rely on his power, and then thirdly, as we trust in his promises, looking to his mercy, relying on his power, trusting in his promises, this is how we pray. And Mary is showing us if we will but have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's start with this. Looking to his mercy, verse 50 again. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now that theme of what's captured there in verse 50 comes up, all, it's all through this song, this prayer, but it encapsulates so beautifully right there. What we see here is that God, to the fearful, to the fearful, God delights to show his mercy. To the fearful, God delights to show his mercy. Now, we need to be clear on our terms here. What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it speaks here of, of fear? It is not in any way speaking of terror or worry or anxiety, that, or just, just that sense of, oh, my goodness, I don't know what he's going to do. I'm afraid for the next shoe to drop. I'm staying awake at night, scared to death. That's not at all what this is referring to anyway. Rather, when the Bible speaks of the fear of God, it is speaking of reverence, of a, of a heartfelt desire to honor and please Him, to serve Him. As the wisdom literature, especially you see as in the Proverbs, you see again and again this, this, this statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where we begin in just understanding a sane approach to life, an honoring Him, a reverencing Him, a desire to serve Him. That's just... That fits with the grain of all that is. In that sense, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. Okay, well, you see here, Mary is showing us that it is, in that sense, the fearful. In that sense, the fearful. That God delights to show his, his mercy. Mercy. Mercy assumes poverty of resources. Intellectually, emotionally, socially, spiritually, a poverty, a bankruptcy of resources. We, we know we have got nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. It's what you see again and again in the Psalms. David expressing so beautifully, so candidly, so transparently to us. That's this spiritual poverty. It's, it, it, the backdrop for mercy is an assumption of helplessness, and yet also at the same time an assurance of God's help. Keep your thumb here in, uh, in, in Luke 1. Let's go back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. You have Genesis, you have Exodus, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is the Lord's revelation of himself to Moses. And these words that we're about to read are repeated all through the Old Testament. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, obviously, that text that revelation of God to the people of God does speak of his holiness, does speak of his justice, but what is the overriding theme there but of his love and his mercy? He delights to show, as, as surely as the sun in the sky, 
cannot help itself but bring forth light. God cannot help but show forth mercy to his people. It's just who he is. It's his character, his grace, his love, his mercy. To the fearful, again, back to what I said before, in the the sense of the biblical sense, to the fearful, he delights to show himself to be merciful. Now, what in the world does this have to do with prayer? Again, Mary's prayer here should shape something of our own. It should be instructive for, for us. Lord, help me learn what it is to fear you. Help me not. I confess I do. Help me not to presume upon your love as I tend to. As I, take it to, as I tend to take you and your love and your mercy towards me for granted, as though somehow I deserve it. Help me. Help me to be a fearful man or a fearful woman in that right sense. Help me not to ignore your counsel and your commands, but yearn after them. You've spoken, you have revealed these things to me for my good, for your glory. Help me. Help me. And show me your mercy. Show me your mercy, O God. My heart is broken. My hope is fading. I look near, I look far, I look close. I look around, where are you? Show me your mercy. Do you see how this impacts how we can pray? To the fearful, God delights to show his mercy. And while, again, while Mary's experience, while her prayers is, yes, it is unique, we can learn so much here as we consider and apply it for ourselves. That takes us to the second thing, the second point, not just looking to his mercy, but relying upon his power. Let's pick up where we left off in, uh, in the Magnificat. We uh, pick up in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. To the humble, God delights to show his power. To the humble, God delights to show his power. Biblically speaking, though, what do we mean when we speak of the humble? Again, it's, it's worth thinking through and being careful and, 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 and clear on. Um, strictly speaking, to be humble is not just, in fact, it's really not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You see the distinction? It's not just thinking less of yourself. I'm a worm. I'm an idiot. This is all I've ever done, these mistakes. Everything they've told me is right. All the guilt, all the shame. That's not humility. Thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Not presuming to have a priority of place at the table, not demanding your rights, 
Not assuming that you are deserving of your just due. That's humility. Thinking of yourself less. And Mary points the way here. If you go back, we go back to the Annunciation and this dialogue that she has with the angel Gabriel. And after the angel declares to her what it is that is coming and who it is that is coming and how it is that he is coming and through whom it is he is coming, her, her response in verse 38 of chapter 1 is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And that word servant, you probably have that. If you, can see, if you, have, if you have a Bible there in front of you, you can see there's a footnote down at the bottom. Many of our translations say this. Bondservant, slave, handmaiden, that's who I am. And you keep reading. You go on to uh, into the Magnificat, and it, this theme comes up again. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Same word. Mary, Mary is, a, is a girl who is, is living in poverty, and I mean that in a, in a double-edged sense, not just economically and culturally, though that was the case. She is a poor peasant girl living in this backwater town of Nazareth. But that's not the only sense. She's not just economically, socially, culturally poor. She is spiritually poor. She knows that she is a sinner in need of a Savior standing before a holy God. And therein, her stance before this God is making no demands, just yielding herself, just yielding herself. That's humility. And what we see here, it is to the humble that God delights to show his power. The verbs, they're in verses 51 through 53, so striking. These reversals, you see, that are being, it's just, it's, it's, it's a revolution. It's a cosmic revolution that is being spoken of here. The up is going to be brought down. The over here is going to be brought over there. The over there is going to be spun up. The, the, there's going to be a bringing up and a bringing down. A filling up and an emptying out. And, and this, the, the verb tenses are worth, actually verb tense is worth noting here as well. Did you notice it's all past tense, the way she phrases this? And what is she, what's going on there? She's using, it's really capturing all the tenses. Past, she's recognizing, reminding us, this is exactly what God has done all through the history of his people, these things. This is exactly what he's doing in this moment. In this moment. And prophetically, she's speaking of the future using the past tense, using the past tense to, to help us see the, the, it's just going to happen. It's assured. This revolution, this, let me put it this way, the shaking. And I don't mean to play down the... Um, the heartache that no doubt hundreds and thousands of people are feeling right now in the state of Alaska. I don't know if you've been following the great earthquake that shook up there. But you take that shaking compared to this shaking, and that shaking is no more than your little snow globe in your Christmas decorations in terms of what is coming. In terms of what is coming. That's what Mary is speaking of here. Again, the reminder, to the humble... God delights to show his power. What does this have to do with prayer? Again, 
Mary's prayer is meant to shape our own. So, oh God, I am a proud man. I don't just think too much of myself, which I do. I think of myself too much. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Birth your humility in my proud heart. I am a proud, arrogant man. And it shows itself in the poisonous fruit that I produce. Have mercy on me. And show me your power. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring forth your kingdom and give me the eyes, my blind eyes. Give me the sight to see it. Even now, in my poor heart, in my family, in this church, in this community, may it blaze forth. Help me see. Show forth your power. And help me see. Do you see how this informs our prayer? Yeah, Mary's experience is unique, but we need to consider it and apply it to ourselves. Last point, the third of the three. Not just uh, do we desperately need to look to his mercy and rely on his power, but we need to trust in his promises. It's the last two verses, the last thing that she says here. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Sarah and I get asked this question quite often. We're first sitting down with a couple and we're kind of getting to know each other and they ask, how'd you meet? How'd you meet? Mary's alluding here to the story as to how God and his people met. How did it happen? How did it happen? How did they become his? And how did he become their God? All his initiative, all his grace. Again, keep your thumb there in Luke 1. Go back to Genesis. Let's go back to the book of the beginnings, Genesis 12. She mentions Abraham, so we might as well go there. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, because here we see exactly what she's speaking of. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is his name before it was changed, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You have to go way back, way back to get an answer to that question. How is it that Israel, that we become his beloved? You have to go way back. You have to go way back, and you have to go way deep. You have to go way deep if you want to ask the question, not just how did it happen, but why does he love us? Why does he love us? This is a question and an answer we cannot ask and get this answer enough. It's probably something we need to wrestle with daily. Why? Why does he love us? Well, you're in in Genesis. Since you're so far back there, let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. We get the question and we get the answer. 
Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Why does he love us? God tells his people, for you are a people, Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Do you get it? Why does he love you? Because he loves you. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We cannot talk about the answer to that question enough. How is it that we are named, marked out as his beloved? Because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. And to his beloved, he delights to show himself faithful. The incarnation, the eternal Son of God becoming man, is the fulfillment of all the promises, promises that go back centuries. And it's why in Mary's prayer, it's just overflowing with references, either directly or indirectly, to the Old Testament. She is soaked in the Old Testament, and it is coming out, pouring out of her pores. The, our incarnation is the fulfillment of it all. As we sing, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What is that? A little town of Bethlehem, right? Yeah, thank you. I should have looked that up. Good thing I didn't sing it. It's the fulfillment of, the, of, of all the promises of the incarnation. Now, what else is it? The guarantee of all the promises. If he can do that, what else can he do? If he will be true to his word there, well, then what else is coming? What else can I be assured of? We ask the question, why do you love us? Here's another question. Can I trust you? Of the Lord, can I trust you? Can I count on you? Will you be there? And the answer of the incarnation is an emphatic yes. Now, not necessarily as we think he has to be. And the incarnation is actually proof of that as well. That's another sermon. But certainly as he knows he needs to be, for our deepest, surest, best good, He will come through. He is always there and with us, Emmanuel. We have the certainty. We have the answer to his beloved. He delights to show himself to be faithful. How does that speak to our prayers? Oh, my goodness. Lord Jesus, help me to know. Help me to know I am who you say I am. I don't believe it. I just confess it. I don't, not to the extent, it's like it's just grazed on the surface. Just enough for me to say it. Not enough for me to believe it. That I am your beloved. That the assurance and security that I have of your love, I am your treasured one, your child, 
adopted by grace. My security, my standing before you, with you, beside you, has, is not because of my holiness. But rather, I should be yearning for holiness because of my security and the assurance that I already have. Oh, but God, I get that all flipped upside down. Help me see. Help me see and live out of the reality that I am your beloved. And help me to know that these promises are real and true. Help me to believe that you are there. Help me to, help me to pray with boldness and with assurance. As I, I see again and again in the Psalms, Lord, this is what you've said. But this is what I see. You know how many Psalms, that's basically the outline? This is what you've said, but this is what I see. Help me believe and help me to wait. Help me to trust and know that just because I see what I see doesn't change what you've said. Help me. Help me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy to us in recording these events, these words. We are not left to wonder what was said and what was done. We thank you even more for the events that these words speak of, for mercy and for power and for faithfulness poured out, fulfilled in the coming of a baby king for us. Mary saw these things, they stirred her heart, may they stir ours. May our own hearts be ignited to pray. Oh, would you light the spark, and would you fuel the fire because of what we see. In your name we pray, amen. Let me ask my fellow elders if you would join me down front.